Welcome to episode 43 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today we've got an intel report for you, as well as a spoiler-free review of Guy Ritchie's Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre. And just a quick note, please accept our apologies, as the audio for this was just a bit below our normal standard due to some technical difficulties. But I assure you we'll be back to true CIC level by next episode. But without further ado, take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Natasha Romanoff. Ethan Hunt. Looks like Elsa Faust. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. Yeah, baby! Special agent, you're not having a very special day, are you? But remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Coming to you from an undisclosed location. Well, actually, undisclosed locations. Because there's yet another virus that some terrorists let out in the world. It's Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg. And with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC the podcast that is currently partying like it's 2020, baby, because we're back on Zoom. <laughs> we are uh, making do. We had a little uh, kerfuffle, a little, little minor setback, but we shall prevail. Well, well, let's get, well let's just say that uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman set the Wayback Machine, and apparently certain people that have interacted with me that came back with the, the machine may have brought some nasty little flu-like bug along with them. So mm. in the interest of being safe and safe, yes. well, safe anyway, sane is always a question, yes. uh, but in the interest of being safe, we are working from two satellite remote undisclosed locations indeed, um, indeed. until uh, I wait whatever the required incubation period is and I can <laughs> go back to having a life again. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But uh, yeah, welcome back to the CIC. Today we have a uh, Intel report ready to roll for you. And then followed by our, very excited about this, our spoiler-free review of Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. So very excited <laughs> about that. So that should be fun. It should be fun. Uh, here's a quick uh, non-spoiler-free review. Don't let the name throw you off. It may be really long, but it's still pretty good. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. But uh, yeah, I suppose we should. Do you want to just uh, jump right into this sucker? Let's do it. Looking for a new story? Impress me. Transmitting CIC Intel dossier. They'll print anything these days. Okay, so, uh, you know, as I have advertised on the various social medias, we are just weeks away from what I am calling the road to reckoning. Road to reckoning. That's right. That is right. We are going to be ramping up our, our coverage of Mission Impossible because, as you all know, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is coming to theaters this July. I believe this 14th, and uh, we are very excited about that. And so, in the interest of that, we're going to be giving you reviews of the last three Mission Impossible movies that we have not yet covered on our way 
to the brand spanking new one. And uh, in the spirit of that, I've got a whole bunch of Mission Impossible intel to kick off this intel report. First thing that I saw, there was a uh, story in IndieWire magazine that recently reported the test screenings had begun on Dead Reckoning Part 1, which happened on March 8th. And the president of Paramount Global, Bob Backish, was quoted as saying, we actually just did the first test screening for an audience last week and the audience lost their mind. And it's still too long. They've got to cut it. But the movie is insane. It's like a complete thrill ride. And Tom, he's very good. Uh, well, of course, Tom's good. He's always good. Yeah, Tom, Tom's very good. Oh, look, the sun <laughs> came up today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Whoa, uh, is that the moon? Does that come up every day, too? <laughs> you know, I think we've tread this area before, but, uh, you know, Tom Cruise has had disagreements with the studio before, and I think we're all pretty much aware that Tom generally wins these arguments like 100% of the time. So Yeah, yeah, I feel like all he has to do is go, what was that last movie I just did for you? What was that last movie? How much money did that movie make for you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Therefore, what we're going to do things my way. What was the last movie that made that? Exactly. What was the last movie that uh, that you made that made that much money that didn't have, I don't know, a starship in it? Um, <laughs> let me see. Let me see. Yeah. So well, you, you know, the funniest thing about that quote is it's still too long, but the audience lost their mind. Right. So, so it's if they like, were actively engaged for however long it was. Why does it need to be cut? Right. Exactly. So who knows? I mean, I don't know. Allegedly, it's around three hours long, which seems to be the sort of the thing that's that's happening with all movies right now. I mean, John Wick yeah. 4 is, is nearly uh, three hours long. It's only, yep. I think, a couple minutes shy of that. So Yeah. Well, you know, the last two Avengers movies kind of set the standard for that. Yeah, now um, everybody's doing it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? If you've got a story to tell and it's interesting all the way through, who cares how long it is? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I don't want to sit through a six-hour movie. You know, some people people differ on their opinion of this, but honestly, I would be all for bringing back intermissions. If you're gonna, if yeah, you know, if you're gonna make a good three-hour-long movie, just give us an intermission halfway through so we can get up, you know, do our thing, come back, and be ready for the second half. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially two one-and-a-half-hour movies. So you build a cliffhanger in the center of it. Yeah. Give people time to get up and go relieve themselves of their 32 ounce frosty beverage of their choice. <laughs> Cause that's really all I care about is about halfway through the movie. My old man bladder is kind of like, eh, we could maybe go pee now. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've often said that if I ever built a movie theater, each one of the theaters would have its own bathrooms and that would be playing the movie on front of the, in front of the urinal or on the doors <laughs> of the stalls. So you could see the watch the whole movie while you were doing your business. If anybody's listening, I'll let you have that idea for free. But anyway, I just wonder about the keeping clean and uh, uh, the upkeep of such a facility. But but that's neither here nor there. That's <laughs> either here nor there. Uh, three hours is fine. If I'm enjoying the movie, I don't care. Yeah. And with all of the stuff, it seems like they're cramming into these last two Mission Impossible movies. It feels like they almost have to be two hours just to get all the stunts in. Yeah. And uh, also in Mission News, um, based on the Instagram feeds of several stars of Mission, looks like filming is in full swing currently for Dead Reckoning Part 2, as well as they're still getting pickups shot for Dead Reckoning Part 1. Simon Pegg, I follow Simon Pegg pretty religiously, actually, on Instagram because his 
Sunday morning stories are actually kind of entertaining. And and he was talking about this past Sunday, he was talking about how that they had to do pickups for, for Dead Reckoning Part 1 still. So that thing is still definitely not a finished product yet. They are still, they're still tweaking that thing. So... I mean, maybe maybe they will cut things. And the thing is, too, it's funny, the whole uh, quote from Bob Backish, too, about, you know, it's too long or whatever. But, you know, I've heard plenty of interviews from McQuarrie about how they have deleted giant scenes that cost lots of money because it just simply didn't work with the story. So right. I'm not real worried about what Bob Backish has to say about, you know, what they need to cut. I think that Macquarie has a pretty good grasp on yeah on what to leave in and what to cut. So yeah. Oh, and and on that note, actually, speaking of Mr. Macquarie, um, he actually announced on Instagram that Hannah Waddingham of uh, Ted Lasso fame has been added to the already illustrious cast of Dead Reckoning Part Two. So that's fun. Uh, you may remember uh, Hannah Waddingham as the owner of the club in uh, Ted Lasso. Oh yeah, no, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's great. And I'm just trying to figure out uh, what role she would possibly have. Well, based based on the photo that I saw. Now, first of all, I know that they were shooting on an aircraft carrier. They were on the George W. Bush uh, that thing that, mm-hmm. and I know she was there. So I get the feeling she may be playing some sort of military upper, upper, upper. Okay. I could see that. Although, you know, she's English, but uh, okay. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. So Hmm. I also uh, saw that uh, Miss Haley Atwell uh, was also headed back for more filming uh, on Dead Reckoning. It was funny well, I too. Film her all they want. <laughs> Don't cut any of that, Mister McQuarrie. <laughs> it's funny too. I got I actually got in trouble on Twitter for trying to repost her picture uh, on Twitter. They tried to flag me for like inappropriate content or something. I'm like, this is not a naked picture of Haley Atwell. This is a fully clothed Haley Atwell on vacation in Spain, and they flagged That's it. Odd. Yeah, I had to actually fight it. It was so weird. Anyway, <laughs> did they perhaps flag it because you didn't send it to me? That well, maybe that's the case. That could very well think, be the case. I think there's something on Twitter that says that those pictures have to come to me automatically. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to remember next time. But okay, uh, <laughs> but that's about all I have for mission for right now. But uh, yeah, get ready because uh, next month, man, the road to reckoning—it's going to be something else. We're going to have some fun. Yeah, we are. Also uh, in Intel, I know that we're doing our spoiler-free review of Operation Fortune after this, but I wanted to bring up Carrie Elwes was recently interviewed by some website called Action News with a Z on the end. Um, well, that's, <laughs> and, that's, that's quality news reporting there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure uh, I'm sure we can trust that this is completely legit, but I'll just read it off anyway, because it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. Um He was asked whether or not he sort of helped shape his character, Nathan, in Operation Fortune. And he said, I think I did a lot of the backstory myself and figured out, given his connection to MI6 and how he's been charged with being a handler for a group of agents who are working unofficially for the British government. You know, my grandfather was a special operations executive. And ironically, that's the story Guy and I are doing next. I used a little of my own family history to create the character. So that's really kind of cool to find out that sure that Carrie Elwes has family connections to British intelligence. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. And it's very cool that 
you know, it gives us sort of a glimpse into the that they're already well underway on uh, the League of Ungentlemanly Warfare. So that should be. Uh, see, I feel like Operation Fortune is almost at this point a wind up to Ungentlemanly Warfare. I feel yeah. like un- I feel like Ungentlemanly Warfare is going to be a bigger movie than Operation Fortune. But yeah, I have to agree. Only time will tell, I suppose. Also, uh, new trailers. We got a couple new trailers recently. The first one was for the uh, Russo Brothers exec-produced spy TV show on Prime called Citadel. And I believe we talked about this briefly in a previous Intel report. Um, it stars uh, Priyanka Chopra Jones and a rather popular candidate for Bond on the internet, Richard Madden. The blurb on IMDb states, Global spy agency Citadel has fallen and its agents' memories were wiped clean. Now the powerful syndicate Manticore is rising in the void. Can the Citadel agents recollect their past and summon the strength to fight back? So, kind of like a born identity slash long kiss goodnight premise, uh, but with multiple people. Right, well, and apparently multiple series that are based in the localities that the series are going to be shown in. So they're creating like a whole web of different things that all tie into the central hub of a, of an idea. Yeah. And I'll be curious to see how that goes and whether or not they seem like completely different animals from one another. Now, watching the trailer, the trailer felt very Russo Brothers and not necessarily in the best way, if I'm being quite honest. Like it felt. Were there, were there a lot of big titles that said where people were located? <laughs> I, I, I don't recall that, but I do feel like there, there was a lot of heavy handed CG, green screeny type work that felt, unfortunately, it felt a little like Gray Man in, okay. in, the, in the ways you don't want it to feel like Gray Man. Uh, right, 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 right. Also, the poster that was released for it looked almost identical in design to Tenet. Like, it, like the the, <laughs> the letters, the font, like it was it was angled in a diagonal fashion, just like the Tenet. I was I was a little oh boy, I was like oh no, but we'll see. There are no original ideas anywhere anymore. No, not as well, especially not. Po- I don't know what has happened to movie poster art, but it's gotten lousy. Yeah, because nobody does art anymore. They don't have artists doing it. They have marketing departments doing it. And they're right. like, well, this worked for somebody. Let's try this. Right. Let's somebody, try that. Somebody in marketing who's had like, you know, two classes on Photoshop. <laughs> right. Well, it's not even that. They've got, they probably have amazing Photoshop people. Who went all through school and never touched a pencil or and, a piece yeah. of paper. Right. And, you know, they just, they're like, they learned if you place something in the upper two thirds quadrant of the right hand side of the poster, that <laughs> is the natural focal point for most people who are right handed under the age of 47. And that's where <laughs> they put everything. Right. I mean, it's, it, it's all done through psychology now. It has very little to do with. With artistic um, endeavors, with their, yeah, that's why that's why you got companies like uh, like Bottle Cap Galleries and Mondo that re that release poster art for old movies that sell out like in two minutes because actual artists interpret what they would have done if exactly. they had been hired to do a movie poster. It's ridiculous, you know. I, every time you used to only see it on those B movie remakes, you know. Like yeah. you'd have Transformers, Dark Side of the Moon, Moon, and then you'd have the the Corman esque version, which was Transmogrifiers, <laughs> Dark Side of Mars, and you know they're all in the same pose and it's the same coloring, but 
they don't look like the copyrighted versions of everything else. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it looks like that comes out April 28th. So uh, we'll just, I suppose only time will tell how that uh, how that pans out. But I don't know, I'm curious. I, I mean, if it's if it's different directors in different locations giving it a unique look and a unique vibe, there may be at least one or two offshoots of whatever this is that they're doing. It may prove to be really interesting. So yeah. it could be sort of the scattershot approach of see what sticks. You know what I mean? Like each of these different places are given their shot to make something and maybe one works a lot better than the other. So they kind of shift their focus towards that as opposed to, you know. Yeah, if you look at it as a work in progress, I suppose you can uh, work out the kinks as you go. Yeah, I, I don't want to give any particular show a lot of chance to breathe, except for the ridiculous True Lies remake that's coming out. I'm going to condemn that immediately without seeing <laughs> it. But I'll give Citadel a chance to, to see whether it, it, it poops the bed or not. <laughs> well, Jason, that's a very good transitional moment, actually, because speaking <laughs> Of that uh, tepid crap remake of uh, True Lies that CBS attempted to do. Uh, we have the perfect response to that show. Uh, we got a very brief trailer from Netflix for the new Arnold Schwarzenegger show called Fubar, which is about a spy named Luke and his daughter Emma, who have been lying to each other for years, both of them not knowing that the other is a CIA operative. Once they both learn the truth, they then realize that they actually don't know very much about each other. So that should be very, you know, honestly, it sounds kind of cheesy as I'm reading this blurb on it, but the trailer looked really funny. I know. Schwarzenegger, surprisingly enough, can do comedy. Yes. You know, when you look at Junior and you look at Kindergarten Cop, I mean, if it's well-written comedy, right. you can do it. If the dialogue is there. Right. If you're right to his strength, no pun intended, um, <laughs> even the original True Lies. Yes. Was 60% comedy, 40% action movie. Mm -hmm. So the right writers can make him shine as long as they stay in his wheelhouse. And this one looks like it's going to be in his wheelhouse. Yeah. It to looks, be honest with you. What was that girl's name? Uh, was it like Fortune Feimster or whatever? Yeah. Fortune Feimster. Yeah. She She's looks... in a nutshot. Pow. <laughs> yeah. Like that little moment. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm in. I'll watch this because you know I was a little skeptical because you know Arnie's a little past his his prime, but at the same time, like this looked interesting. This looked like yeah. something I would actually sit down and give a shot to. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. I, again, certainly more than uh, the True Lies remake horseshit. Oh god, yeah, that was pretty rough. God. I didn't even make it all the way through the trailer. I got about halfway through the trailer and yeah. it was just so bad and then and then all these terrible reviews came out. One of them was one of them was titled The New True Lies Show is an argument to never remake anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there another one that said it was less entertaining than having dental work done yes, or something like yes. that? <laughs> so uh, I, I just want to point out kids we predicted this already without seeing any of this stuff that's right anyway let's just move on we, we probably should so seven years after its first season it's been now reported in deadline that season two of john le Carre's the night manager is in the works uh with john hiddleston set to return so that's pretty friggin' awesome yeah i imagine the plot's gonna be that he's retiring from the hotel because it's seven <laughs> years later and yeah they're gonna you know 
He's got nothing else to do, so he's going to retire and go live on the beach where he was working. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, season two will film later this year in London and South America. And uh, although it is yet to be formally greenlit by Amazon and the BBC, we hear that it is set to receive a two-season order, which I'm always a That's- big fan of when they do it when they do two seasons concurrently. Yeah, for sure. Well, I hope that's, that this pans out because that was an excellent show when yeah. it came out. So I'm, I'm psyched for that. I mean, that's, I believe it's the uh, same sort of thing that they did with uh, Slow Horses because I know that they are doing the next season and then the season after that concurrently as well. I just think that's, especially now that all these streamers are putting out these seasons that are only like seven episodes, you might as well just shoot it like it's a full season and then just like backlog them. I mean, if they got the whole band together, might as well play two albums instead of one. Exactly. So, you know, I almost, uh, I know this is, this is the CIC and we do talk about Bond, but I almost don't want to talk about Bond today. Just because, you know, the Bond, the world of Bond right now is a little, it's a little uneasy, man. It's a little, Ron, everybody's kind of feeling a little melancholy in the infinite sadness, you know? We we just, <laughs> you know, Daniel Craig has, has parted ways and things are looking a little gloomy as far as when the hell we're going to get the next Bond movie. But I'll, I'm going to start with the good news. I'll start with the good news okay. and then we'll we'll delve into this thing that we have to delve into because this is what we do. But <laughs> so the first thing, the good stuff. Uh, so if you're on Twitter, there is a gentleman named Ian Jacqueline who is fairly prominent in the Bond community on Twitter. Um, he used to run, forget which, there's a, there's a fairly famous theater in London, I believe it is that he used to be manager of and he's a big promoter of film in general he's a he's just a he's a great guy like he's he's done a lot for the bond community he's helped facilitate interviews with with the spy hards podcast he's helped those guys out he just he does a lot of stuff for for bond stuff and his latest thing is that he um was able to organize an official petition to have the lazenby lamppost in london restored to its former glory so for those who don't know back when honor majesty secret service first came out uh they did some publicity photos with george lazenby around various parts of london and what have you and one of his most famous one is these photos that he took at this lamppost that is just across the thames river from big ben and the parliament building and he's doing his little gun pose and yada yada you know he looks very smashing dashing but it's this (laughs) lamppost well over the years that has become a thing where bond fans will go in fact myself included have found this lamppost and posed doing the George Lazenby pose with the lamppost with Big Ben in the background and everything else. Well, about three years ago or so, the lamppost was vandalized and heavily damaged. Like the entire lamp itself on top was ripped off. Yikes. Yeah. Now it's just a post with a bunch of, you know, like concert stickers on it or whatever (laughs) um and so ian jacklin has has organized this petition to try and have it restored so the website says you have to either work live or study in the area to sign it but i was actually able to sign it after entering my initial information and from there you just refrain from checking the boxes that are on the second page so i feel like this is a great initiative and if you think so too i really do encourage you to sign it i think it's a cool idea 
I will um, make sure to have a link to it at the bottom of our uh, show description for this episode so that we can bring the Lazenby lamppost back to its original glory. So so that's my silver lining to this, this Bond note that we're currently on. All right. So we got to talk about the books just briefly because I'm not going to turn this into a whole episode. We are not the guys to turn what has been going on with the Bond books for the 70th anniversary. We are not the guys that are going to make a whole friggin' episode out of this because we are we're we're here to to make dumb dick and fart jokes and exactly and talk about spy movies in the process. So, so as long as they leave the words dick and fart in the books, we're pretty much okay with it. <laughs> we're pretty much okay with it. But, you know, as most Bond fans already know, the Ian Fleming Foundation, in their infinite wisdom, have decided to hire sensitivity readers to help change some of the text in the various James Bond novels that newcomers to the series may find distasteful. So this is all in the wind-up to the 70th anniversary of the first Bond book. I mean, I don't understand why they didn't just... Put a disclaimer at the front. It's just, I don't know. It's just, they're, I feel like they're getting themselves into hot water. The biggest thing, the biggest, and you actually pointed it out to me. The biggest problem I have with this whole thing is that they're picking and choosing. Yes. It's one thing if you're going to do a sweeping stroke across the entire book of all the, you know, anything that shows a, a stench of racial bigotry or whatnot, or something that, that shows a specific, whether it's genders or sexual orientations or races in a bad light, you're going to have to do a broad stroke to clean that up. If that's what, if that's what your intention is, you got to do the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose. Right. Because you're going to have people now coming out. Once these books are out, they're going to be like, well, how come you got rid of the N-word, but you didn't get rid of these other words that pertain to people from China or Japan or Korea or what have you? And so you're just asking for trouble, in my opinion. In my opinion, it would be much better to just put a disclaimer at the front and say, listen, this was written a long time ago when people had some pretty messed up thoughts Mm -hmm. about a lot of different types of people. So maybe read it with a grain of salt and understand that, you know, it no longer kind of jams with how we roll in 2023. Right. Well, let me tell you, they usually put disclaimers on books that people are get considered to literary accomplishments. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that they're better or worse than anything else, but most literary accomplishments are in the public domain. And you can do whatever the hell you want with them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody owns Huck Finn anymore. And you can read that book all day long, and it's got a lot of stuff in it. But it's historically relevant, right? Because yeah. it's it's a piece of American, great American literature. So you could throw a disclaimer saying, yeah, this was written back at a time when these things were blah, 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 blah. However, something written by Ian Fleming is owned by Ian Fleming's company. It's a corporation. Fair they enough. intend to continue selling them, make money. And because of that, they're driven to have to do things like this, just like many other content producers are being driven to do things like this. But like I said, my thing is, if you're gonna, like you said, if you're going to do it, do it all the way. And... You know, there's a joke that I see periodically on social media, which is this little blurb that says Blazing Saddles will be broadcast tonight on network TV. It will run from 8 p.m. to 8.07 p.m. (laughs) And 
When you think about the basic material of the James Bond book, when you, if you went and cut everything out of it that could possibly be offensive to somebody, you just the misogyny alone, right? You wouldn't it have much. It starts being left. a novel. It starts <laughs> being an essay, right? So again, why not just say this is is what it is? Or you know what I think would have been better? Nobody asked me. Obviously, nobody <laughs> called me and asked. But what would have been better is to leave the original books stand on their own, hire some quality writers who've been writing Bond stuff already to rewrite the novels in a more modern twist with the exact same storyline. Right. Get somebody like Anthony Horowitz, right, to come in and update. Yeah, just to do a whole a whole pass then. Yeah, if you're if you're gonna try and modernize it, truly modernize it, that's what I think you're right. I think that's what you'd almost need to do. It's like you can't do this half-ass sort of thing. It's not gonna fly with anybody. You're not gonna please people on either side of this argument by doing it this way, the way that right. they're that they're currently trying to do it. It's a Muzak decision. Yeah. And quite honest, I mean, I'll just put this one final counter-counter argument to it too. Now, granted. This is not, these books are not works that depict, you know, social injustice of that time frame. <laughs> if anything, it's sort of depicting views of people who are maybe on the other side of that, <laughs> you know, but you don't learn from your history if you try and erase it. That's all I'm going to say. I just needed to put that out there. This is the thing that I feel in my heart of hearts, but you know, again, this isn't to kill a mockingbird. This is a spy that goes around and he has some less than tasteful opinions about people and <laughs> and women and a lot of things. So, well, so is it? There's so always is it, the option to just not read them. That, yeah, and there's that too. Exactly. So, I mean, money talks, man. Either that's it, exactly it. If people aren't buying your books and you're asking why aren't you buying her books, the people are coming back and saying. Because you're a bunch of racist assholes. Right. <laughs> then that's all this is. They're trying to get ahead of that. Yes. But they're doing it in such a way that they're not getting ahead of it. Right. <laughs> in any way at all. <laughs> no. But uh, I think that's about as much as I'm willing to spend on this. Uh... I think it's two minutes too long already. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So not to end on a on a sour note or whatever, but uh, we did we lost Chaim Topol, who is most famous for his role, of course, in Fiddler on the Roof. But uh, for us Bond fans, we all remember him as playing the ultra charismatic pistachio chomping Bond ally Columbo in uh, 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Um, yes, maybe one of my favorite parts of that movie, actually, he was just so again, I think I've pretty well established this in previous episodes that allies tend to be my favorite characters in spy movies. Um, and he is certainly no, uh, exception to that rule. He's fantastic in the movie. In fact, I feel like he outcharms Roger Moore in that scene where, where he's trying to sort of convince Bond that, that he's on he says something to the effect of by the end of the night, we'll be drinking and hugging or whatever. I, I forget exactly what he says, but he's he's fantastic in it. And uh, he will certainly, certainly be missed. Absolutely. But uh, that's about all for Intel for now. But um, hey, if you have some juicy Intel for us or if you have a suggestion, a comment or hey, even praise, even if you just want to let us know we rock, why not get in touch? <laughs> or if you have a, a, an opinion on uh, Rudiger. So, you know, get in touch with us on email. It's uh, CICDeadDrop at gmail.com. On Instagram, it's Central Intelligence Cinema separated by underscores. 
or on Twitter, it's at CIC Spy Pod. And we're also on Facebook. So uh, just search for Central Intelligence Cinema to like and follow. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. But now, uh, should we get into this uh, spoiler-free review of Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre? Absolutely. I'll go first. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> I have another job for you. So what we got? Greg Simmons. A billionaire arms dealer. Oh, a lot of very serious faces up here, aren't there? You can't catch this fish with conventional lures. I'm sorry? The lure being? Danny Francesco. The movie star. Greg Simmons' favorite movie star. And how do we get him? Blackmail. Who's to care? Very good. Carry on. When we swear I go. He recognized your awesome fortune. That is a sexy name. Cover's blown. So it was released uh, here in the U.S. on March 2nd, uh, written by Guy Ritchie, along with his frequent collaborators, Ivan Atkinson and Marne Davies. And uh, for those of you who have been living under a rock for the past 20 years, Guy Ritchie has directed things like Snatch, Man from Uncle, and The Gentleman. And uh, he's back once again to do what Guy Ritchie do. With the same people he normally do it with. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's very much a Guy Ritchie film. I think... Uh, Indeed. I think that he dialed back the action just a little bit. Yeah. I, I feel like... Actually, one of the things I think I like about this movie the most is the fact that it proves that you can make a fun spy movie without necessarily having to have these giant spectacular i'm talking to you tom cruise you can have a spy <laughs> movie that's really interesting without having to have these huge set pieces with amazing stunts you can just have really clever dialogue and a good story and good make some good twists and turns in it and you can make a, a really fun spy movie and it doesn't have to have like you don't have to you know, ride your motorcycle off a cliff when you're 60 years old. That's really dangerous, my friend. <laughs> I'm just saying. All of that, all of that is true, but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that uh, Operation Ruth de Guerre is not going to make Mission Impossible money. No, it won't. No, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, cinematography was by uh, Alan Stewart, who is also a frequent collaborator with Richie, uh, having done Wrath of Man and The Gentleman, as well as their live action version of Aladdin. <laughs> Most of it's uh, pretty well done. Didn't feel like there was a ton of CGI in it. I don't know if... No, I really didn't. I didn't. I, I felt like I didn't see a whole lot of that. Most of it felt practical. And it felt pretty slick for the most part. It really, I think about there's a scene on this boat, this very nice yacht type thing at night, and it's spectacularly lit, I actually thought. So cinematography didn't have a problem with that. Although, and I'm not going to point out exactly what it is because I don't want listeners to then go to the, see the movie and then be looking for this very specific thing that I'm thinking of. Okay. There are a set of shots that are all, it's, it's the same shot, but it's different moments in the movie. And man, it is, it is jarring. It's weird. It's weird looking. Anyway. So obviously the main spy character is uh, Orson Fortune. Orson Fortune. Played Orson by, Fortune. <laughs> played by, Jason Statham, that is a sexy name. Um, <laughs> and then we've got uh, Sarah Fidel, played by Aubrey Plaza, who, uh, mm. oh, my goodness, I mean, she kind of 
just sort of steals the show from everyone by just being Aubrey Plaza. I mean, yeah, it's not really very hard. It's not very hard when you're Aubrey Plaza. So now I will say there, this cast is pretty fantastic. There are some great individual performances going on in this movie. You've got Hugh Grant, who plays the bad guy, Greg Simmons, who is like a billionaire arms broker. And he just leans into this character, just kind of hams, not hams it up, but just very. He's about as un-Hugh Grant as you can be in a movie and still be Hugh Grant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just, but he's fantastic. You know what I'm saying, Danny? You know what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying, Danny? Yeah, that's the hey, other Danny, thing. Danny, hello, Danny. Danny, <laughs> are you listening to me, Danny? <laughs> yeah, the Cockney accent that he like fronts on this is so good. It's just. You can't. Like he was trying to be Michael Caine. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Then we've and then we've got Josh Hartnett who plays Danny Francesco, who's sort of this uh, himbo movie star who Greg Simmons is a huge fan of, and so that's kind of the whole idea is that is that they're using him to get to this arms dealer. We've got Carrie Elwes who kind of plays the M character, who's named Nathan, who I thought was pretty fantastic as well because he's he plays it really. He's odd. He's a little weird in it. Like he's and the and the makeup yes. job and the makeup job that they did on him too. He's kind of like oddly pale in the movie. Yes. Like I'm not sure what that's all about, but he looks almost ghostly in the movie. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on with that. And then we've got JJ, who is played by a rapper slash actor Bugsy Malone. I wish they would have given him a little bit more to do. The character's yeah. the character's cool as hell, but you know, he's not given a whole lot to to do except like be insanely cool and be like, yeah, I got this. Don't worry about it, boss. I got it. You know, and he's he's just the the very reliable right hand man, basically. Yeah, he's like if you took Benji and Luther and crammed them together into one guy with a gun. But less charismatic or or at least less charismatic lines to, to work yeah. with. Well, when you've got Statham sucking in all that oxygen, it's kind of hard to stay conscious through the whole thing, I'm sure. So <laughs> I suppose. But it would have been kind of cool if I guess you can't make you can't make the guy who's the sharpshooter the guy who's who's the everyman. You can't make him that right. guy. So right. So it's kind of limited with what you can give him. Then we've got, uh, we've just got a couple side characters too. We've got Knighton, who is basically like a prime minister type or or head of defense for England, I'm guessing. Something. Played by uh, Eddie Marsan, the always peculiar looking Eddie Marsan. But, you know. He, he does what he does, as well as uh, there's the kind of a side bad guy named Mike. Oh, Mike, that dirty Mike, uh, played by Mike, Peter. Mike, 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 Played by Peter Fernando. He's, he's pretty much just. He did the job he was supposed to do. Right, exactly. Um, Just a quick synopsis. For people who haven't seen the trailer, elite spy Orson Fortune must track down and stop the sale of a deadly new weapons technology wielded by billionaire arms broker Greg Simmons. Reluctantly teamed up with some of the world's best operatives, Fortune and his crew recruit Hollywood's biggest star, Danny Francesco, to help them on their globetrotting mission to save the world. So, that about sums it up. Yeah, but uh, I mean... <sighs> You know, obviously we can't say too much, you know, since this is spoiler free, but my biggest takeaway is Aubrey Plaza. Good night, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You wish you could take home Aubrey Plaza. (laughs) Well, well, yes. Um, My second takeaway, though, uh, which I said earlier, though, is just that 
it's it's a really fun movie. It's a really good, just lighthearted popcorn type of movie that does prove that you can make a spy film that doesn't have these huge set pieces and it can still be this really fun energetic movie that that you can watch the dialogue is really snappy and it's funny and everyone who's supposed to be likable is likable Mm -hmm. Um, I did write down a few notes. I did feel like this is just sort of a take on the movie as a whole. It feels like it was rushed. Now, obviously, you know, if you've been listening to the CIC for a little while, you know that this movie had some issues with distribution. And I wonder if that is somewhere that's some of the problems that we're dealing with if there was some sort of some deadline issues or making certain people happy before this thing is released. It had a weird premiere. It was premiered in uh, Dubai, so it, which is a strange place to premiere a movie. Maybe in the future it won't be such a strange place. I don't know, but it did feel a little a little odd to premiere it there. Makes me wonder: was this thing under some sort of pressure to to come off a certain way? Because there's some there's some weird moments in this movie from a technical standpoint where it's like, wait a minute, what just happened here? Right specifically too there are two very strange edits in the movie yes and that's all i'm gonna say two edits that will make you just sort of you it will knock you out of the movie briefly because you're just like what the hell i literally on the first one i looked back at the projector thinking like did something just happen was there <laughs> was there something wrong with this movie can we get a better copy of the movie like it was a little weird now, on the positive side, there was a fantastic, subtle nod to one of the actor's previous uh, movie endeavors, <laughs> which was maybe my favorite part of the whole movie because it was so clever. And that's the thing. That's the thing that I did like about this movie. It was really well written in terms of dialogue. Yes, it was. Um, I did. I did feel like half the budget might have been spent on all 8,000 gazillion outfits that they put Aubrey Plaza in. She's literally yeah, it wearing like in something in every scene differently. Yeah. <laughs> it was like there was a wardrobe change like literally every five minutes in this movie for her. It was like being at a Lady Gaga concert. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's just every three time songs change, three songs yeah. change. It's every time she comes around the corner, she's swishing out in some new nice little ensemble, you know. <laughs> so and you know, we talked about already a little bit, but man, Hugh Grant. I feel like Hugh Grant's best performances lately have just been in Guy Ritchie films. Yeah, but haven't all of his performances lately been in Guy Ritchie films? That, that is true. That is true for the most <laughs> part. <laughs> that seems to be where he gets most of his work from these days. I did feel like it kind of had some Man From U.N.C.L.E. energy. It really did. Certainly not as much as Man From I mean, Man From U.N.C.L.E. is, is a superior film. It is. Right. Well, and at the end of the day, it's a buddy cop movie that has spies in it. This one wasn't going for a buddy cop vibe. It was really going for more of a low-end, Mission Impossible, uh, uh, stunt-free kind of vibe. So two different animals. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, as far as overall watchability and enjoyability, I think, man, from Uncle's a superior product. Yeah. And then just uh, my only other note here is just more. I don't know why this trend is happening, but all these giant location titles in spy movies. Do we really need Sean Longmore? I, I hear you now, buddy, man. It's just that's all I see now when I'm watching spy movies is these giant, unnecessary location titles. <laughs> like, now look, we, we... look at this amazing font we bought. We're going to <laughs> spread it across the entire screen. <laughs> we can thank the aforementioned Russo brothers for that whole thing because I'm pretty sure they brought that back in Winter Soldier, and mm -hmm. they're just going to milk it until it no longer 
is a thing anymore. Indeed, indeed. You know, I I, I enjoyed it immensely. I, I will say you got a Statham performance that was Statham worthy, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, not not got too much huge... outside the normal Jason Statham no, no, performance. No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't straying. He wasn't trying to win an Oscar here. He was just yeah. playing himself as he plays himself. And I, I will say, too, they don't try and focus too much on his fight choreography like sometimes they might do. You know what I mean? He has his fighting moments, but they're not. I feel like that's not the center of the film, the way some of his other movies are, where it's. Now, most most of his fight scenes are very quick and to the point like they would be in the real world. Yeah. If you're a superior, if you're a superior combat person fighting people who are inferior to you you should be done with your fight in four punches right so right uh, most of it was wham bam thank you man back to doey what i'll do so <laughs> you know that, that that was good hugh grant is definitely the gem of this movie oh absolutely he feels like he's building on his performance from the gentleman yes and and trying to break type which i i always appreciate i think mean, 90s hugh grant is something i never want to see again <laughs> so if he wants to continue to reinvent himself, I'm fine with that. I will say that, yes, Aubrey Plaza did make this movie for numerous reasons, uh, but I feel like Guy Ritchie didn't know how to use her very well or wasn't yeah. sure how he wanted that character to be because I've watched his girl be everything in tons of different movies. And it's like, well, I want you to be Parks and Rec, Aubrey in this scene, but in the next scene, I want you to be Aubrey from Legion. But over here, I kind of want you to be a combination of Aubrey from, you know, this movie with a little bit of Parks and Rec sprinkled with a little bit of something from when you were 12, you know? Yeah. She did it. She did an excellent job regardless, but her character sort of went between. It was a hard ask. Yeah. It went between slapstick, kind of, and full-on serious spy stuff, and you never really could see which turn was coming. And I'm like, well, if you secretly told her, you're kind of nuts in this, and then you just don't know, it's a brilliant performance. But if it was, I, if it's, in this scene, I want you to be this, but in this scene, I want you to be that then I don't think it was as successful. Yeah, it, I feel like it was a hard ask for her to have her be all these things, because she really is like three different archetypes for a spy movie in this in this movie. She's, you know, she's the tech expert, and right. then she's also the femme fatale, and then she's also this ambitious wanna-be-out-in-the-field spy right. type thing. She's, which, she's basically Benji. But hot. And, and, and Luther. And Money Penny. Yeah, trying to wrap that all into one, which, right. I mean, you can do, but from scene was, to scene, it kind of varied greatly. <laughs> yeah, it, it lacked a certain level of consistency, but it doesn't affect the movie at all. Yeah, it's just, no. You just are never going to get a read on exactly what her character is. And like I said, if that's what Guy Ritchie was going for, great. He was very successful. Right. right. Um, and I will say that some of the larger... I mean, I guess in my mind, there's really only one large set piece that comes towards the end of the movie. And it, and it's delivered so well that you're like, I've kind of seen something like this before, but never presented as well as it can be presented by the people involved in it. Yes. Um, and so and then, and you get to see it again later. Yeah, you see it again later, but we'll, we'll that's about as, all, as, as yeah, much as exactly. we can say about it right now. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, overall, fun. It went quick. It was definitely enjoyable to watch. 
I mean, it's a very fit and trim movie. I think it's only like two hours. Yeah. But yeah, super fun. Highly recommend you go see it in the theaters if you can get a chance because it's... Support your local cinema. Support your local Richie. Indeed. Indeed. I want to see more Guy Richie in the future. So, But yeah, if you uh, have gone and seen it, please reach out to us in, in one of the many various ways that we've already outlined for you. But I think that's about all we have for this uh, episode. That's certainly all I've got. All right. Well, with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.